You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, and this is Method to the Madness coming at you from the Public Affairs Department here at CalX, celebrating the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar, and today I got with me Sean Lani. He's the director for the studio of for public spaces at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Hey, Sean, what's hey, going on? Hey, nothing. Just here jabbing this yeah, morning. Yeah. yeah, thanks for jabbing. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> Appreciate you coming in. Um, so we're going to talk about a few things. Exploratorium obviously is a beloved institution mm. in the Bay Area. Um, but I always ask people when we when we first start out about you know organizations like the Exploratorium, they're very unique, and they start out with kind of a problem statement in mind. Like, what is the problem statement the Exploratorium is trying to solve? That's a good question. A lot of people think of the Exploratorium as a science museum that was formed um, in in the way that a lot of things were formed. But the, everything, the cultural institutions tend to be a product of their times. They're responding to a need. And at the time, there was an educational reform movement going on in America. And the 60s were happening. This was 1969 it was founded. And Frank had spent many years... Frank um, uh, Oppenheimer. Oh, yes. Frank Oppenheimer had spent many years as a teacher on a ranch... Uh, kind of perfecting a hands-on method of, of learning and was convinced that uh, people really needed a place where they can get their hands on things and figure things out for themselves. You know, one of the things he used to do is take his kids out to a junkyard and, you know, very non-traditional approach, take things apart, find out how they work. You know, it was definitely a sense that the authentic was always a driving force and also a trust that people were naturally curious and could be inspired to kind of explore their own inquiry. And that turned out to be a very powerful model for teaching and learning. Yeah, and I think any of us who've been to the Exploratorium totally get that feeling because that's what the place is all about. But taking just one more kind of step down memory lane, can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about Frank Oppenheimer, who he was, and how he came to found the museum? Yeah, Frank Oppenheimer was uh, Robert Oppenheimer's younger brother. He's sometimes called the uncle of the atomic bomb. Um, he worked on the Manhattan Project, and for uh, many years after that, he was um, ostracized from universities and uh, ended up in a ranch in Colorado. And he was a natural teacher. He was very much a humanist. And so as he spent many years out there kind of basically surviving, he ended up uh, coming to San Francisco. He still had a lot of contacts. A lot of people knew who Frank was and started the San Francisco Project and found the Palace of Fine Arts. He wrote up a rationale for a science museum. And, you know, ended up stomping around the hall, city hall, uh, drumming up uh, support for it, and uh, got a 30-year lease for a dollar a year at the Palace of Fine Arts. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's not a bad deal. Yeah. Pretty good for yeah. San Francisco real estate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the funny thing is, even at the time when Frank walked in that behemoth of a building, he already thought, this isn't going to be big enough. Mm. And in fact, we added on to that building some years later, a second a second floor. And then eventually, we outgrew the building altogether and moved to Pier 17 just five years ago. Pier 15, sorry, in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. So thank you for that story and understanding kind of where it came from. So we're almost 50 years yeah. into the Exploratorium's founding. Um, where where What's the journey been like? Where are we today? Well, the Exploratorium is... I think necessarily evolving. And I think this is true of any cultural institution. They need to evolve with culture in order to respond to it and be relevant. Um, and as we, you know, we started as a science museum with exhibits that quickly grew into a explainer program that integrated teens on the floor explaining and working with visitors. We started professional development of teachers very early. We were one of the first 600 websites um, when when that started to evolve. And so the museum's always been kind of a, a, a slowly growing 
uh, institution with new feature sets. And more and more of those have become interrelated over time. And so when I think about the Exploratorium, I went there as a child, you know, three and four years old. You kind of fall in love with the place. And even all these years later, I walk through and there's something familiar about the way that we respect humans as learners. And in everything that we do, the way that we approach the work is very much um, in support of somebody's own sense of wonder and inquiry and to enable people to ask questions of the world and, and find those questions useful and, and even to question the answers they get back. When they ping the world, we want, to know, they, we want them to know that they are active learners. They're in control of what they understand. And so that's always kind of been a thread throughout all of our work. Yeah, and it's so it's so fascinating to me as I'm listening to you talk and think about many times in this show we have people who have started an organization six months ago, mm-hmm. or eighteen months ago, mm-hmm. and it's just they have this dream and this vision. And one of the and I've been part of founding teams too, and I think one of the um, the things that a founding team dreams of is to have something be sustainable, yeah. and go on for a long time. Yeah, and now we're sitting with something like that yeah. exploratorium. We're almost fifty years in. How does the governance work? Like, how do how do you guys keep the mission vibrant and alive, yeah. even though Dr. Oppenheimer has long since gone? Yeah, he passed in 1985. Um, he used to say that the Exploratorium was anarchy, and Frank was the anarch. <laughs> and uh, there was a certain kind of a glue that he could bring, um, just through kind of force of personality and his intellect. Was so as somebody, somebody once said, walking through the Exploratorium was like walking through Frank's mind. Yeah. But in fact, the place has evolved a lot since Frank has passed, and I think that was also by design, because just like We've always treated visitors as part of the equation. Staff has always felt like it was part of their job to generate new ideas and to figure out new ways of engaging with audiences increasingly diverse and in new ways and in subject matters that are that are important to them. When I when I first got when I first got there in '93, we uh, were doing some work with the National Science Foundation, which is a long-term supporter. But I was kind of surprised at the number of people doing things that I didn't think at all were related to the Exploratorium. And we eventually we had a body show. We had shows about memory. Um, we looked at our light and color and sound exhibitions, and we renamed them Seeing and Hearing, thinking more about how people are not only sensing the world but perceiving it. And the acts of perception is active. You're construing, you're making sense of the world as you find it. And so reframing the world is actually a really powerful tool for allowing people to see things in a new way and then from that moment forward carry that with them it's not something that happens in the museum for that moment which is uh, static it's dead when you leave and you might pick up some information but that's just information a way of seeing the world is far more influential i think and and, and actually it's far more respectful because what we what we don't do is say this is the right way to look at the world what we do say is have you thought of it this way have you thought about how 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 what when you look out at the when you look out at the bay say it's just all um looks like a bunch of water right but the but the long story behind that is where it comes from and the push and pull of the salt water and the ecologies that live there and once you you tell that narrative um for a lot of people i think it 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 builds an appreciation for 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 a way of looking at the world that's more animated it's more animated and it's actually it's much more fun it's much more interesting and so that, I think that's the way that we've we've drifted over the years as we added more and more program. Is how do we do, how do we do that more? How do we how do we connect with people in such a way that they feel like, you know, they're a little different f- from after they've brushed up against us? And 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 likewise, I think the museum needs to feel like, hey, we 
we're we're being changed by our visitors as well because we're in conversation. Yeah, and it's so appropriate, I think, for like the spirit of the Bay Area. Because, yeah, like I always think of us being kind of like the furthest on the west of the Western civilization and kind of able to question everything. Like that's kind of where we're at, and and just geographically, like we're the most newest yeah. of all the cities to come, and so we can kind of look back and say, well, should we think about it this way? Should we think about it that way? Yeah, and Exploratorium really like embodies that kind of spirit. So yeah. it's 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 uh it's easy to take for granted. Especially if you grow up here, and I know you're you're raising some children, and once you have kids, you start to realize, like, wow, we are in the middle of so many things. We watch movies. There we are. You know, you hear stories, or 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 you see uh, movements come out of the Bay Area that are global. And I've been lucky enough to travel a lot because of the Exploratorium. We we have a lot of global influence from the Bay Area and, and the Exploratorium itself. You know, we've um, we do global consulting we do a lot of professional development we treat we teach over or we train over a thousand teachers a year we've trained over 30,000 teachers since since the inception of the uh, the teachers institute and that's a kind of influence that that continues on so those 1,000 teachers teach 15,000 students right those 30,000 teachers think about all the kids they've reached and, and all we've done is given that teacher a new tool a way of using inquiry and informal approaches to learning about the world, and then they take it and move that forward. So that's that's the kind of impact I think the exploratoriums, for me in my mind when I think of it, I don't think of it as a place, as much as a kind of movement. And it's and I think it's continuing to be a kind of movement. You know, we occupy a a, a space in people's minds sometimes because they went there as a kid or because they bring their kids or they. But there's something about the place that just glows, and yeah. the more we can export that glow <laughs> the better right yeah bottle it up somewhere. bottle it up yeah but don't don't commercialize it you yeah. know there's that beautiful blend of yeah. of sharing it's a kind of it's a kind of it's a kind of sharing yeah and the amplification effect is so much what's so special about founders in my mind if yeah. someone has this idea in their brain and if they're successful like dr Oppenheimer was look at the amplification effect and how many yeah. lives he's touched just because he he pursued that thought in his brain of, well, people should have experiential learning. That's right. And like, look what's happened since 50 years later. So That's right. It's really amazing. So I wanted to, we're talking to Sean Lunn. He's a director for the Studio for Public Spaces at the Exploratorium in San Francisco, right here on Methods of the Madness on KLX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. Um, Sean, so let's talk a little bit about the director uh, or the Studio for Public Spaces. Mm. Um, so there's lots of programs there. But before we get into mm. that, I want to just get a little bit of your background. Tell us about yourself. Uh, well, I grew up uh, in the Bay Area primarily. I was born in, uh, in San Leandro, lived in Oakland, and so I'm definitely a Bay Area person. I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time out on a ranch in eastern Nevada and was inspired by just the raw nature of that landscape. And in fact, I've brought a lot of that work into the Exploratorium was a, and, and that way of seeing those landscapes. And uh, I studied uh, Davis and, and really enjoyed... Um, English and art history. I studied a lot of things. And the funny thing was I wasn't a science guy. You know, I, I, I was handy and I, I, would, I could fix things like on the ranch. But mostly when I was supposed to be digging holes, I was staring at springs or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> watching birds. And so I wasn't a great rancher either. So somehow I landed up, you know, ended up at the Exploratorium. Uh, I got a master's in museum education and design at uh, John F. Kennedy University. And, uh, you know, I've, I just never thought... I could work in a place that wonderful. I, I didn't even think to apply, and it popped up, but it was—it seemed faded. I lived only three blocks away from it. 
um, I, you know, I was just extremely lucky to find it. And it, that place um, changes over time. We've gotten a lot bigger, um, and its mission has shifted uh, necessarily. And I was able to to slot into a place and then move through the museum and experience what the global impact is like, what it's like to work locally. And then in 2008, we opened a show at Fort Mason. Um, it was an outdoor exploratorium. And rather than introducing phenomena like we do in the museum, we capture it. Um, out there, we framed it. And we looked at the landscape as kind of a subject matter and and tried to do those conceptual framings that allowed people to see the world in a new way and was really hooked, really uh, fascinated with the idea that you didn't have to go inside the museum to have a really poignant experience. And in fact, was struck by how much, how different it was. I wouldn't say better, but it, 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 having it be a part of your daily life seemed to make it much more accessible and and far more interesting as a developer, as a designer, because then it's like you're in the ultimate uh, flea market, right? Like, what's that? How did that happen? Where's, what the, you know, all these questions come to mind. And, and sometimes when you dig a little bit, you find the most amazing answers. You know, we, we, um, we're curious. Pete Richards, a senior artist at the museum, he had heard the Golden Gate Bridge moved up and down because of the heat. So we put a GPS tracker on it. We talked to Leica. You know, we really um, did our research. And it turns out, sure enough, it moves up and down a foot or two depending on the temperature of the day. And there's kind of a mean temperature in the middle. So we put a scope on the bridge from a mile and a half. Or actually, it's three miles away uh, with a little line in the middle. And we called it a bridge thermometer. And if it was a hot day, the bridge would be low. And if it was a warm or cold day, the bridge would be up. And it was just so such a lovely kind of observation that Pete had brought along. And then we were doing evaluation later, and a runner came by, and she stopped, and she looked at it, and she took off. And our evaluator chased her down and said, well, you know, that's usually not a good sign if somebody just does a glancing <laughs> blow. And she said, no, I just, I just like to see where the bridge is every day when I run by. I want to see what the bridge is doing. So it was such a wonderful thing to think of, like, reframing that big static thing in the distance, not as kind of a thing that doesn't move, but a thing that's re- being responsive to temperature. When the sun rises, you know, it takes a couple hours for the bridge to heat up and sag. So there's all these beautiful thermodynamics going on. And it's that kind of animation that really caught our attention. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of like, like just in such a hyper creative environment of like almost like in I would think in like Saturday Night Live where you have all the writers around yeah. pitching ideas <laughs> yeah, and like right. there's yeah. like lots of ideas. Like how do, how does it work? Because I would think that the staff there is super creative and comes up with all sorts of interesting thoughts like that. How yeah. Does, how does the process of getting something approved and funded go? Well, you know. We prototype a lot, and you might have an idea, but if you don't test your idea, nobody's going to believe you. Mm-hmm. And 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 the ultimate test is how the public responds to it in the final form. And so, one of the things we do, we we utilize evaluation in a more formal way, but also in an informal way. We 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 tinker about, we try things, um, and that's true of, of most subject matters. Even as we move into the social sciences and thinking about. Um, stereotypes and thinking about how do you how do you exhibitize some of those experiences you don't really know until you go out and you try it with people and and the beautiful thing about that isn't that they're going to prove or disprove what you thought was right they're most likely going to inspire you to do something that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of so mm-hmm. that collaborative effort extends far beyond your immediate development team i mean we might beat each other up about whether we think it's a good idea or not but that kind of healthy criticism can only really be verified by by the end users. 
Sure, which is very much you know part of the spirit of San Francisco tech life, yeah, and lean startup. And yeah, like well, you know it's funny. Design. You know, I got I you know <laughs> I'm starting in '93. There was no tech. There was no. Yeah. I didn't have a computer on my desk. <laughs> you know, if you wanted something, you called the old guy that worked at the part shop, <laughs> and you told him what you needed, right? And uh, and then that's but the language started to come from tech eventually. It started yeah. to to seep, and uh, and some of it was familiar, and some of it sounded. Um, kind of uh I wouldn't say naive but but th- there was the beginnings of that movement because that kind of iterative culture the prototyping culture takes a long time to get good at yeah not not 20 years but a few a few years sure and uh and the lessons that tech learns sometimes um it's in this much shorter cycle mm-hmm. so they'll learn part of the lesson but the but the full lesson really is I think it goes to the maturity of an organization and of a, as a creative person and who's who's able to, to work with others and also listen. Um, it's not an easy thing. But yeah. when you get it right, you understand why it works. Sure. Yeah, well, so back to your story. So you joined in 1993. Mm. You kind of – it sounds like you just lucked into the perfect job for you, which <laughs> yeah. is – congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been there for a long time yeah. now, so that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so and you're right now on this uh, public space, the studio yes. public spaces yeah. project. So tell us about that and how it came to be. Yeah. So the the as a, as an exhibit developer back then, you know, you would develop exhibits for the floor. People have experiences. They learn from those. It was a, it was a um, something that you learned over. The, it took about five or seven years. I got my chops, and that project at Fort Mesa was interesting because we had these this kind of instrumented landscape. Right, you could walk through and experience it. But what I think we missed, I found out later with subsequent projects, is that places have people in them, and those people part are are part of that landscape. That social landscape is also the raw material of future experiences, future exhibits, ways of it. You don't only have you can you can instrument the landscape, but you can also help instrument people's behaviors and how they're moving through the world. And so after we opened Piers 1517, we did uh, the first Living Innovation Zone on Market Street. And that was through the Mayor's Office of Innovation with Mayor Lee. And we worked with uh, Neil Hershey over in city planning and uh, Paul Chasen and others. And and it was uh, a remarkable experience because we put a pair of listening vessels, which are eight-foot-tall discs done by Doug Hollis, on Market Street at the Yerba Buena Lane. And nobody really knew what to expect, including us. But we had this notion that that inquiry is a natural um, kind of social lubricant and that um, there are lots of rules on Market Street. We know this, right? You don't look people in the eye. You don't talk to anybody. You don't put your bag down. It's like a human freeway, right? So we, we put these listening vessels kind of diagonal to that freeway and... And people really responded. Um, I think they responded in, in in a better way than I'd even hoped. They were willing to t- talk to strangers. Um, they were kind of joyous and celebratory. They would watch each other play and figure this thing out. They'd try to find out where it was plugged in. So these dishes, um, you can whisper in these dishes and hear each other from 50 feet away very clearly. And it's also very intimate because it sounds like somebody's just in your ear because the way the sound is focused with the parabolic dishes. And so, so after that, I, uh, the Studio for Public Spaces was founded with the goal of like bringing more of these inquiry-like experiences to public spaces because the audience is vast. 
the impacts are amazing, really, in terms of um, in terms of how it shifts people's behavior in real time, in real space in cities. And so since then, we've done uh, many projects throughout the Bay Area, San Leandro. Um, we're working on a project currently in on Fulton Street between the Asian Art Museum and the library across from City Hall. And uh, it's to to bring this methodology work, the way the exploratoriums work traditionally, the prototyping, the iteration, the respect for the learner to a public space. And I think especially with social sciences, um, understanding how we construe the world, what science can teach us about how we understand things and why, how and why we process the world, exploring that in a public space, especially when it's challenges you and Plaza and um, the Civic Center, you know, it's improving. There's, there's a lot of things going on there now, but there's also a lot of friction. It's right in the middle of it. I mean, you had to put a pin in San Francisco and say, where's the middle of it? It's right there. And it's a, it's a powerful medium to be in and um, exploring topics like, you know, how, how do we categorize it? Why do we, why do we so immediately categorize people? How do, why do we stereotype folks? What, what biases are driving ourselves? You know, you, there's this old way of thinking about the human mind. We, what you know of the world is directly proportional to what you know of yourself. And to understand how we're thinking on a meta level is, in, is incredibly empowering because it allows you not to be a victim of your own fast twitch thinking. You can slow down and you can reconsider. You can look for the options of uh, when you look at a scene. Like, what's, what, why, didn't, why am I, just, not only this is what I think about what's happening, but why am I thinking that? And what other alternatives might there be? So I, it's, it's been fascinating and um, I think also humbling to have such a dynamic mix of emotions, cultural issues, and then trying to do this, this placemaking maneuver in the middle of a place that is kind of inherently inhospitable. We're, we're speaking with Sean Lonnie. He's the director for the Studio for Public Spaces at the Exploratorium Museum in San Francisco here on Methods of the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. And Sean, so you're talking about different projects that you might be doing mm. in different municipalities across the Bay Area. So take me through, how does that work? I mean, the Exploratorium can't just parachute in. Like, hey, we're going to do this. <laughs> no, that's hey, the worst. Out of the way. That's the worst case, man. <laughs> you never go where you're not invited. Yeah. That's the rule. So um, how do you guys build these these projects? Yeah, they're very complex networks of partnerships so this this the city is one level but we also have formal relationships with the Gladstone Institute uh, NASA the Smithsonian uh, UC Davis UCSF we've worked on the resilience by design design challenge with uh, Tom leader through the Bay Observatory and so those networks have been forming over the last 50 years literally and I think the last 30 and t- even 20 years we've really accelerated that partnership there's strategic partnerships meaning that we have partners where we benefit from each other's expertise. And the idea that, uh, you know, we've always brought in uh, a lot of uh, Osher Fellows, which is a program where we have visiting scientists. We've had Nobel laureates. We've had poet laureates, right? We've had uh, MacArthur geniuses, four or five of those coming through the program in order to enrich the work. And I think that, so that's the natural mode for the museum now is to have many, many receptors. Because what we can do, I think, is, make some of that really important work, especially when it comes to the environment, environmental issues, we can provide a platform for people to understand the the complex issues that are going on around them and a way of sorting through the information and figuring out what they think is important. 
and not not telling them what's important. It's not it's not that kind of advocacy. It's advocacy for the visitor to to feel like they they understand what's happening, so they can make a more informed decision. Which is very much about one of the tenets of Frank's founding, the Exploratorium, was we need an informed citizenry to have a healthy democracy. You can't have it without that. Yeah, now more than ever. Now more than ever, and I and I think it, you know. The the need continues to increase. It's never gone away, and and the notion of learning is like what the body of work that we learn about is a bunch of facts. That's not true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the cultural pursuit of what we collectively value, and that shifts over time. So only through partnerships and only through uh, these this way of thinking can the exploratorium remain relevant. So with our work in the Studio for Public Spaces, we're working with urban planning, we work with the mayor's office, we work with Reckon Park, we work for the Trust for Public Land. We work with other people that are um, invested in public spaces. So the the oftentimes there's there's community groups, groups like Green Streets over in Buchanan Mall, Citizen Film, there's there's smaller nonprofits, but they play an incredibly important role as guides. And how to make this work, and and guess what? You know, Mary, Mary Lee used to say for the first Liz and the other, he says we're going to make this a bureaucracy-free zone. So you guys are going to come in and do. So it turns out it was actually bureaucracy light. There was still a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, that was aspirational. Yeah, it was aspirational, <laughs> but you got to reach, and and it got us in, right? It got us, yeah. the, it got us the gig. Um, but to be able to go th- through those permitting processes with DPW or with MTA and have a good working relationship and and even watching those departments bend a little when they're not totally sure it's going to be okay i think is really a hopeful sign i mean there there are so many good smart people working in city government i know that sounds crazy but i i am shocked how dedicated they are and how willing they are to bend a little and to help things that might that, that might not be uh known as Success. This is going to be a total success. But the way we work as two-year pilot projects very often, it's worth the risk to find out, does this help? You know, Are we prototyping a way for the city to work in the future? And what can we learn from this lesson? And it's, it's heartening to see how many people will um, support that kind of activity. Yeah, I think so much has to do with the vision. So um, no. we had Ben Davis on the program, who was the thought leader behind the Bay Lights sure. or the Bay Bridge. Sure. And he had to get a, a few different municipality yeah. organizations together to make that happen. But the vision was so strong and everybody loved that bridge. Yeah. So they were like, yes, like I, I get it. We want to do it. And I think you guys have that power too because you have a vision that people, like you said, like you feel it's not just about when you're at the museum. It's about the the next day or that night. That's or right. Like I I feel that with my kids when we take them there, because we're members of the Exploratorium, and they talk about it for a few days afterwards. Yeah. Remember that thing? Remember that thing? And it's just it's such a it's a vision that's so powerful that I think is galvanizing for people to get behind. Yeah, I, I always joke it's it's almost a cheat when you come into a situation. Um, that's in, in a public space. The Exploratorium comes and like, oh, you guys are here. Like, always, always so happy to see you. You know, like, who's gonna fight with Exploratorium? Like, we don't fight. We just want to come here and have some fun and talk about things. And so, it it really is a leg up to to to, to build on that many years of of goodwill and tradition. And we're and and I think that's super important. You know, when it comes to brand value, people don't want brand. The Exploratorium is is so has always stri- stri- striven or strived striven. Stroven? Strove. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to be authentic. It, 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 
doesn't lie to people. It, if I mean, I remember even to the. This is how crazy we can get. If you have a a box of wires, there's always a question whether or not you could make it out of plexi or you should make it out of wood. Because if you can't see it, you might not trust that it's not just going through or connecting up. So oftentimes we'll reveal the back of an exhibit yeah. just so people can kind of test it. Yeah. You know, and so <laughs> it's that it's that, and I wish government was like that. Actually, you know, that <laughs> radical transparency, transparency. right? <laughs> like, like, is it is it doing this? And like, I don't know. Try it out. I mean, if you if you can't tell, that's not a good exhibit, right? Yeah. That's not a good experience if you're wondering or scratching your head, and wondering if somebody just put one over on you. Yeah. And so we we have always tried to have that kind of relationship, and that really pays off when we go for partnerships. Um, they sense that we're not gonna get between what it is that they think they're it's important and what they're what they're trying to show and what the visitor is going to take in yeah we're all about facilitating that understanding well it's it's super cool work that you're doing and thanks for coming in this morning oh. i do want to ask you just next year's the 50th anniversary yeah so it's such an amazing institution that we're all proud of in the bay area what can we expect for next year to happen at pier 15 or across the bay area well we'll be opening the the social psychology show in uh, July of 2019. And so that is going to be um, 12 to 14 exhibits outside public space installation. And that's going to be paired with a show about identity at the Exploratorium. So and this, is a, this is a really interesting move, I think, f- for the museum um, to move into the social sciences because they're not traditionally easy to, to approach. But I think they are incredibly relevant given the time. Sure. And so those are going to be two peak. Now, we also have a lot of ongoing programming about the environment and ecologies. So we have conversations about landscapes. We have lab and lunch. Um, we just hosted the Climate Summit, several um, talks about the Climate Summit. So we're going to be continuing that work moving forward. And also our after darks um, are every Thursday nights, and those are heavily programmed. So it's, you know, we, um, we're kind of like a piece of broccoli in that way. Like you have the broccoli sprout, but then you have a lot of other little things going on and then you have a lot of other things going on. So, so those are some of the big lobes, but there's lots of other stuff going on as well. I'm sure everybody knows how to get a hold of the Exploratorium. So, um, but how about, uh, for the director, for the studio public spaces, uh, if people want to learn more about that, how would they learn more about it? Well, they can go to just type in studio for public spaces and at the Exploratorium and you'll see the website that has a list of our projects and also a lot of, uh, the thinking and the framing of the work. We um, we have some publications there as well and an ongoing blog. Okay. Well, great. Well, we've been talking to Sean Lani this morning, the director for the Studio for Public Spaces at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Sean, thanks for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. And you've been listening to Methods of the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, University of California, and listener-supported radio. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. Thanks for listening, everybody, and have a great Friday.